Hey guys, this is Kendra. This is Jessica. And you're listening to Lucid, Lucid Lab. Lab. Well, we're back. Yep. Always. I mean, we're always back. Right? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we keep saying that. <laughs> we, we don't know what guess else what? to say, Guess what? We're guys. back. <laughs> it's us. You started the episode. Oops, not us. <laughs> we gotcha. <laughs> we are actually back because this is our second part yeah, of the same true. episode. <laughs> so I guess it is kind of relevant we today. Are, we're back. <laughs> back again. We're going to continue talking about the I-5 killer, Randy mm-hmm. Woodfield, today. I wanted to show you something, Jessica, that oh. I got for our space, because I think we need this after I mean, these last two episodes. It's rocks. It's rocks. <laughs> I'm trying to get woo. I'm Yay. trying to join your witchiness. Nice. I stopped by a store in Fort Collins called Northern oh. Lights. Yay. And the lady helping me actually was a tarot reader and she does tarot readings there. And uh, I went in and I told her about what we're doing, what our podcast is about. And I said, I need, you know, more to add to our collection and to help our yeah. space. Yeah. yeah, we don't have a real altar quite yet because... We're still, you know, setting up our We're area. Kind of bare minimum. <laughs> but one day. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I wanted to bring this in because we talked about Suicide Forest last week. Yeah. And that one was really heavy. And right. now we're talking about Randy Woodfield, which is also heavy. And so I got us this black tourmaline. Have you ever heard of it? I have heard of black tourmaline. It's pretty. So this one, I think I have one, but it doesn't look like this. This one's like the raw version. I was actually told the raw okay. version is, I guess it absorbs it looks more like energy. Kryptonite, but black and oozy. It does. Yeah. It's like an <laughs> emerald almost. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole purpose of black tourmaline is that it is a protective stone and it actually is supposed to repel and protect against negativity, which we don't need any of that in here. Nope. And then it also, um, cleanses purifies and transforms dense energy into lighter vibrations which so i need to sleep with this (laughs) probably (laughs) i do Do sleep with my stones do you it depends on how i'm feeling like sometimes i'll sleep with them on my chest and just kind of have them around they're kind of annoying if like it's a big one and like you (laughs) you happen to like roll around and then all of a sudden you're like oh you're like that hurt my rib (laughs) why is my shoulder but i'll if but um I'm a like a back sleeper typically. Yeah. And I usually don't move, but unless I'm just not sleeping really well, which I do a lot. So yeah. lately I've been turning a little bit like turning around a little bit more than I'm I'm used to. But usually when I do want to sleep with a stone, like I can put it on my chest and just stay there. It's a pretty it holds hot you down. In the morning. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty warm in the morning. It's absorbing all of <laughs> yes, that. So I got the dark stone and of course we need the light to mm. counter out the dark. Uh, yeah. I also got us a selenite, which is something that is nice used in most altars. Yeah, um, I have a wand. Yeah, my child has a big tower. I got us a little egg because we don't have a lot of space here, but this is supposed to bring the vibrations up of your other stones, and it also helps cleanse energy from your stones. So yeah. thought we needed that. Yes. And then I have one other one. Okay. And when I went in and told her what we were doing, this just sounded perfect. Okay. It's called a chrysocolla. And it is a greenish stone. It's kind well, of it's mixed pretty. in. I don't have one like this. So I was told that if you get any of the green stones, that they're um, associated with the throat chakra. Okay. We need that. So for communication, yeah. <laughs> obviously we need that. And some days we need it to clear our throats literally. We do. <laughs> yep. I now have throat lozenges here. <laughs> <laughs> That's Just good. to help. 
keep that frog out of your throat nice. well maybe yeah. this will as well and so this is a goddess energy stone which who yeah. doesn't want help from the goddesses well we are them we are <laughs> it's supposed to help empower communication and bring it in a clear and loving way which we well, want to do will help us pronunciate <laughs> it, uh, yeah actually it says it does. um it will energize the words you speak and may help you choose the right words okay i claim <laughs> it i'm this. holding it the whole time <laughs> this is yeah very important for us because yes. as you guys have probably heard on some of our episodes we trip over ourselves a few times well, remember I, we did say we get loose and that includes <laughs> <laughs> that includes how we speak yes you um, know we're not public speakers no it just tends to flow together and we don't mean for it to no but when you're talking for hours on end you just never yeah you never know and you know the first part of this episode we got a little silly because we were talking about (laughs) randy and his schlong yeah so (laughs) we yeah that's not something we ever thought we'd be talking about on this do we get do we get to stop talking about it today yeah, it's okay. it's gonna get. Unfortunately, it's going to be a lot more serious oh, than just exposure okay. today. But I mean, his penis is still very involved in everything that he does because that's what his life revolves around, right? And mm-hmm. yeah, get to it, get to it. Okay, I want to tell you a little bit more about Randy though, and just give you some background on this monster. So Randy was obsessed with women in a very narcissistic way. Uh, He would run up large, long distance phone bills, you know, back in the day when you had to pay per minute, he would spend hundreds of dollars a month just to call women because he wanted to keep them in his stable, like, you know, on the side because Mm -hmm. he wanted to be able to draw from them when he needed like an ego boost. He needed to keep them all close in some way. Yes. And that is narcissistic. Right. You know, tendency. He would send them letters. He would send gifts. He would send flowers. And just make sure that they never forgot Randall Woodfield. So women near his own age saw through him immediately and they refused him. They had no interest. Women a few years younger found him attractive, but they always thought he was a little off. Only the younger girls or truly naive women would fall for his lines. I have stories and stories and I'm not going to go into them all because all these women, of course, came out once he was arrested and said, oh, I remember that guy. I went home with him. He was weird. Uh, Many women would turn him away because he was that guy that just came on a little too strong. Like you meet him and he's like, you're the love of my life. We're soulmates. We're going to be together forever. Okay, cool. We've known each other an hour. Exactly. There are men who are just way too strong when it comes to that kind of stuff. But naive girls. I know. Think that is true. And if he's this older, good looking guy. Right. They think their dreams have come true. And um, he would profess his love quickly. He would try to go home with them much too soon. He was having a hard time keeping and finding a job that would pay enough for his swinging lifestyle so he could impress women. So he found an old prison buddy and said, what are you up to? We need to go in on this stuff. We needed a wingman. He met up with a guy that he knew from prison and they talked about how to make money and they decided they would become robbers. And (laughs) I just think it's funny. They're like, oh, we're both out of prison and we need money. So... Let's go steal shit. I have this job idea. (laughs) Let's become robbers. And this was the guy who told him that the way to make sure you never get caught is to cover your hair. Yeah. Use some sort of disguise. And he also said, cover your nose because your nose is one of the areas that will get you caught if they're able to describe a distinguishing feature. And it's usually the nose. I see that. Yep. So his friend... 
and him started committing robberies and they would use fake beards. So tape on beards. And they would put athletic tape across their noses to disguise. And then they would have a hood or a ski cap or something like that over their hair. So there would be very Mm, few features that someone could describe. Yeah. So let's get into the crime spree. He was originally known as the I-5 bandit because it started as robberies that he started doing with his friend just to make money. And then it escalated into murders because at this time, no one knew about the other two or the other three murders that he'd already committed. So December 9th, 1980 was the first robbery that was reported. This started in Vancouver, Washington. It was a convenience store. It was a single female clerk. She said the guy came in. He was tall. He had a fake beard. It was obvious it was a fake beard and he had tape over his nose. Hmm. He told the clerk to empty the cash register and to turn around and watch the TV and not look at him. The surveillance camera was pointing right at him, but unfortunately on that day it was broken. Of course. (laughs) How many times have we heard that? So many times. Right. They're just there for looks. Most of them don't even work. That's great. Things. And if they do work, they're so fuzzy, they can't do anything with them. And it's sad we're laughing about it, but so many things happen that you don't get to prosecute someone on because it's just there for looks. Right. Four days later, he showed up at the Baskin Robbins right as they were closing. It was one young teenage girl working behind the counter, pulled out a small silver gun and told her to go into the back room after emptying the cash register. She turned around and went and she thought she would be shot. He just left. One day later, December 14th, he showed up at the Arctic Circle convenience store and he robbed them for $300. So this is starting to get out there that there's robberies going on and they think they have what they are calling the I-5 bandit. However, it's about to take a darker turn. On December 21st, 1980, at a church's chicken right off of I-5, a young girl, 18 years old, was getting off of her shift. She had called her dad to come pick her up and she went into the bathroom. As she was in there, someone pushed open the door. A large man, she said, was about six feet tall with bandages on his nose and wearing a ski cap and wearing a fake beard, came in, closed the door and locked it behind him. That's so scary. It's like one of the scarier things to think about. So she's in the bathroom. Is it a one stall bathroom? It's a one stall bathroom. And while she's in there, there are literally customers out eating and her coworkers are working. Oh. He comes in, he locks the door behind him. He tells her to take her shirt and bra off. He assaulted her by taking off his pants and forcing her to masturbate him. Okay. I really hate having to go into this much detail, but it is something that helps capture him Mm. and connect him. Okay. He did ejaculate on her breasts. Oh. He told her to go and sit on the toilet. And to wait five minutes before leaving the bathroom. And then he left. Oh, my gosh. And she's a, this is a teenager? She's an 18-year-old girl okay. who's just waiting for her dad to come pick her up. Ugh. I am not saying any of the names of no. the women who survive because they want to they do have normal her. lives. Sure. Absolutely. So I'm going to honor them. They did help bring him down, a lot of these Good. girls. And I'm so glad that they yeah. were able to see him go to jail because... Yeah. Fuck him. Can you imagine just getting off of work and you're going to use the bathroom real quick and then head outside to your dad? And that's what that's what happens happens to you. To you. Oh, my God. That same day. So right after he assaulted this young girl at Church's Chicken, 20 minutes later, he showed up in Bothell, Washington at a Baskin Robbins. 
20 minutes later. 20 minutes later. So at Church's Chicken, he didn't rob. He just went in for sexual reasons. He saw this girl. Okay, let me go back. At Church's Chicken, he had stopped there to eat. She came out of the bathroom afterwards, obviously shaken up, and she told her coworker, mm-hmm. and the coworker said he was just in here. He ordered a number five or whatever, and she's like, yeah, he came in the bathroom and you know did this to me, and they called the cops. And right. just you know, 20 minutes later, he's already up the freeway because it's I-5, and he can go 80 miles an hour or whatever. Wow. And the cops have nothing okay. you know, by the time they show up. So he's 20 minutes up, and now he needs money, so he goes into the Baskin-Robbins, once again, it was two young girls. He he had a proclivity for young girls, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And he also seemed to pick out those kind of places to rob. Well, most most um, fast food is going to be young. It's going to be young high teenagers. school students. But yeah. he was looking for girls specifically because every place that he goes is always usually one to two girls working. So okay. he's obviously looking. Uh, these two girls were spared of the sexual assault. And they were just told to sit on the floor and count to 50. They described him as having tape on his nose, a fake beard, and a small silver revolver. It's interesting to me that he's going into just go eat at Church's Chicken with a fake beard. I get it to like. I don't think he was eating with the fake beard. I think he went in to eat and then he saw her and he sat outside and waited for his opportunity. I think he saw something about this girl that he liked sexually. And he did have a type and it came up. He liked slender young girls mm-hmm. usually ones that were larger breasted so he mm, had okay. a type so if you weren't his type he would just rob the place but if you unfortunately fit whatever he was sexually attracted to oh flat good. flat chest <laughs> <laughs> or, or what should i say again mediocre <laughs> flat chest <laughs> i'm sorry uh, we're not young either. We just <laughs> we're old, flat-chested old hags. Old, saggy <laughs> hags. It's okay. I don't want him jacking off on what me. What I love anyways. about a podcast, knowing people, some of the people who listen to us have no idea what we look like. It's true. So we can be telling completely the truth right now. So law enforcement up and down I five is getting all of these reports of robberies, and now they have a sexual assault. So they're trying to figure out what is going on, but it goes quiet because it's now the Christmas holidays. And Randy actually went to Medford at this time to visit yet another friend from his prison days. Oh, okay. So no crimes happen during this time. You said Medford? Medford, Oregon. Oregon, okay. Mm -hmm. So I bring this up because on December 30th, he met a girl named Shelly Jansen. I feel really, really bad for this girl. So Shelly Jansen is a 22-year-old University of New Mexico student. She is home from Albuquerque visiting her dad. She was said to be absolutely gorgeous, like stunning beauty. But she was very naive, and she had this dream of meeting her prince and, Mm -hmm. like, all of that. Well, here comes Randy Woodfield to buy her a drink and fill her with all of these grand stories where he would come across to most women as coming on strong. She saw him as this romantic knight in shining armor, soulmate. They're going to be together forever. He convinces her that he's the one and they start dating. Sharon, Sherry, he likes the shushas. (laughs) The shushas. So Shelly's completely enamored with Randy and... They don't have sex. He's like, you know, we're going to wait because I love you. And she's just 
head over heels for this guy. They hang out for New Year's Eve and then she has to go back to school in New Mexico and he says, I'll write you, I'll call you. He sends her flowers, love bombing, right? Because he's a narcissist. Right. So that's going on. While he's committing all these crimes, he is now love bombing this girl. Okay. So she goes back to school. He moves into a new townhouse in Eugene, Oregon. He's not supposed to leave. He was supposed to stay with the parole officer. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm just going to move. And he doesn't tell her. <laughs> well, she only checks in once a month, right? Yeah, she's not real on top of it. Okay. And she, I think. Maybe she liked him, I too. I was going to say, I think yeah. a lot of women really liked him because he was good looking and he was charming. So right. I think he was just this guy who could play a, a lot of different roles. Right. Depending mm-hmm. on who he was around. Randy was going to start a new life. He decided to move to Eugene and he found a room for rent in a townhouse of a single mother named Arden Bates who had a six-year-old son he was described as being the perfect roommate she said a roommate yeah he lived in her house like in a bedroom she just needed a room he told her that he was down on his luck right now he was unemployed but he was getting an unemployment check per month and he would be able to pay the bills okay she said there was something about him she knew he was probably doing something illegal but he always paid his bills so yeah Whatever. He was also described as being very sweet with her six-year-old son. The neighborhood boys loved him. He even took all the neighborhood boys to see the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh Like, he's just the perfect guy. Yeah. He told her he was going to be enrolling in college, and he always seemed to have lots of money. She did notice that. Like, for an unemployed guy, he partied a lot. He made a lot of long-distance phone calls. Right. And he's using her phone. Yes. She said she didn't care because he always paid his share. Interesting. She also said he got a lot of mail. He told her that he was... He's a terrific pin pal at this point. (laughs) This guy, I don't know how he finds time. I guess he's not unemployed. Maybe he doesn't sleep. He told Arden that he had a serious girlfriend named Shelly. They were going to get married. She was the one. But while he's saying that, he's bringing other girls home. She did tell a story. (laughs) She had a 16-year-old babysitter that came over to watch her six-year-old son. When she came home, she found the 16-year-old in bed with Randy. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine having a babysitter over for your child and then you come home and she's in bed with... He's 30. Her 30-year-old roommate is in bed with a 16-year-old. Okay. Ew. And she didn't kick him out? No. Or call the cops? No. (laughs) Okay. It's a different time, I guess. I don't know. He also brought home two young girls he found hitchhiking. Hmm. And she said they stayed in his room for a few days and then he took them somewhere. She knew the stuff was going on, but she never said anything to the cops. Yeah. So he's moved in now. It's been a couple of weeks and he decides he needs money. January 8th, 1981, he shows up at the same convenience store he robbed on December 9th, the one that had the broken surveillance camera. Yeah. This time there is a 30-year-old clerk working. He was wearing a fake beard and he had tape over his nose and a ski cap. He pulled out his revolver and said, empty the register. She did. And then he told her to take her shirt off and lift up her bra. He told her to sit down and then he laughed at her. Mm. And then he left. Fortunately, the surveillance camera was working this time. That's good. But <laughs> you laughed at her? What? She's so old? I guess. Oh She's my not gosh. 16. She had a wrinkle somewhere. Uh, her boobs weren't big enough. I don't know. By that time, they're sagging. <laughs> <laughs> she just was they like. They don't stay up that long, guys. When That's she was interviewed, so <laughs> she was like, I didn't care. I just wanted him to leave. She didn't give yeah. a fuck. She was happy he didn't do anything exactly. worse. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Three days later, he showed up at a Eugene, Oregon grocery store and robbed them. But there was a elderly man working. So 
He just took the money and ran. But same description, tall man with Band-Aids on his nose. So sometimes it was Band-Aids and not athletic tape, I guess. Well, just whatever, whatever he, he had around. Make, whatever he could get his hands on, I <laughs> he guess. He always had the fake beard, though. Right. And everybody knew it was a fake beard. <laughs> like, it was, I just, I picture how horrible it must have looked like. like. It just probably looked like <laughs> real pubes. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of, like... What was that? It was like a toy and you drew the magnetic beard on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, the Wooly Willy or something yeah. like that. That's what I think of. Willy. He just looked ridiculous. On January 12th, Susie Benet was working at the General Market in Sutherland, Oregon. He showed up and said, give me all your money out of the cash register. She thought he was joking. Like, yeah. It was late at night and she just thought this guy was coming in. She says, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then he pulled out a gun and she realized oh. he wasn't. And she started going around the counter. He made her so nervous she could not remember how to open the register. So she's like fumbling and freaking out because this gun is pointed at her and he gets really angry with her and he went to grab her by the blouse and he was holding the gun at the same time and the gun goes off and shoots her in the shoulder. After that, he tells her to sit down. He takes the money and he runs. She realizes she's shot in the shoulder and she's bleeding. And so she calls 911. When the officers show up, they actually have evidence this time because there is a bullet left in behind her. inside of her yeah. they said she was very lucky because if it had been like four centimeters lower it would have hit her in the lung so gunshots are actually really scary so when you hear someone surviving from like multiple gunshot wounds i don't understand because some people can die from getting shot with in one, your shoulder right yeah it just it's all about the trajectory of the bullet and where it's it hits crazy. and what organs are yeah. in the way and scary but she fortunately lived and was able to give a description. They also found a fingerprint on the cash register, but it was not useful because it was a gloved print. So they could tell that the perpetrator was wearing a glove. The other thing that was reported for the first time is that someone outside noticed that there was a gold Volkswagen bug parked nearby. Fucking bugs. They're everywhere. (laughs) Meaning they're, (laughs) what was it? Like Volkswagen bugs are in Uh a lot of... Back then, like crimes. crimes. Yeah. And he was very proud of this car. It was like this flashy gold mm. Volkswagen bug. And I mean, if you're driving a very distinct vehicle. Right. Don't be a serial killer because you're going to get caught. It's but. not like you can just switch out cars, though. He's like, well, I just <laughs> happen to be a serial killer and this is the car I have. So this was the first time a car go, was ever seen. Um, usually when he was committing these crimes, he was walking from wherever he parked his car. Mm, okay. So that was why this was kind of interesting because there had never been another car reported. I guess I haven't said this in the other ones, but they said he would run off and he would run off into the night like he wasn't running and getting in a car ever. So this was the first time a vehicle had ever been mentioned. I mean, if he's Maybe it was going, cold that night and he didn't want to run that far. I mean, he's called the I-5. He needs to get somewhere quickly, right? It's not I walk. Well, I think... <laughs> I think he would like park his car like three restaurants over or something. He just didn't want it to be near where someone could see it and track it. But for whatever reason, this night uh, when he robbed the general store, he parked nearby. Maybe there was nowhere else. Yeah. So on January 14th, 1981, so he's been at it since December 9th, so about a month. He's been committing robberies mostly. Mm -hmm. He changes it up. And this story, I'm just going to say trigger warning, like this is probably... A really hard story for me to read. It involves sexual assault of children. Mm. I will not go into a lot of detail here. Okay. And this is in one month. And now this is, right? One yeah, month. Yeah, it's been four weeks since he started. Okay. So he's escalating. Right. 
On January 14th, 1981, two little girls, they were eight and 10 years old, sisters. Uh, Okay. Their mom routinely left them at home while she went to the gym right around the corner. They would only be at home for 30 minutes while she went to do her workout. They were left at home to just watch TV, and their mom said she would be home right at 6 p.m. Around 10 minutes after their mother left the house, someone knocked at their door. Mary Sue looked out and saw a very large man on the porch, and she did not want to answer the door. He said, my car broke down, and I just need to use your phone very quickly. (sighs) The little girl let him in and said, our phone is right there. You can use it. And she left the front door open. She was trying to be as safe as I'm sure her mom had told her to be. Yeah. The little girl said that he went in and pretended to dial on the phone. It didn't seem like he was having a real conversation. And he acted like he was talking to someone named Jim. They thought he was acting odd. And when he hung up the phone, they said, "Okay, you need to go. Mm. He said, my friend's on his way. Can I just hang out here with you guys and watch TV? Yikes. She said, no, you need to go. Yeah. Is this the older sister at this point? Yes. This okay. is the 10-year-old. The 8-year-old got scared and yeah. ran into her mom's bathroom. The older sister once again told him he needed to leave. And at that point, he closed the front door and said, I'm just going to stay and watch some TV. He then told the older 10-year-old girl that she should go join her sister in the bathroom. He followed them both in there and did some horrible things. Mm, Freaking babies. (laughs) He left afterwards. Their mom came home at six o'clock and found them obviously shaken up. Mm -hmm. And they called the cops. There was semen left behind at the scene that they were able to use to Uh, connect him in the investigation. Okay. I'm just not going to say it's just so scary hearing about anything like this, having young children. I bring up this horrible situation because this is when the cops knew that there was really something bad going on because you have a rapist that is now preying not just on women because yeah but now children teenagers children like he's like covering eight and 10 like this yeah to them this meant that they were dealing with a very dangerous man right who seemed to be in a manic state and like, he was just walking in wherever he wanted to go this is really scary for law mm-hmm. enforcement because there's no pattern. Right. The victims are all over the place and and he keeps showing up in random places. Mm-hmm. They All they know at this point is that he's along I-5. There's potentially a gold Volkswagen bug. Right. And he could hit anywhere. So imagine like I put myself in that time, how fearful you would be. Right. If you lived anywhere near I-5. Mm-hmm. So far, he's only hit Washington and Oregon but that will change oh that's right he's going down into California California. so the next incident I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on because this is the incident that he will actually be convicted for and will put him behind bars okay right thank god I will go back to saying like the cops had never seen a series of assaults and robberies happen in this quick of a time like he couldn't stop himself it was just this manic like need to just keep doing these things yeah and And it was all different it's not just one thing it was just like right now I'm going to do this 20 minutes from now I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do this and tonight I'm doing this and this like whatever just pops in his mind I'm going to do that so how do you find that's scary that's very scary so mid-January January 18th there were two young women 
Sherry Hall and Lisa Garcia. Another Sherry. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> does he know names? I think or is Sherry that just was just everybody very named popular that? Okay. In, the, in that time frame. I will say right now, Lisa Garcia has also been called Beth Wilmot. I don't know which name is the actual name. I mm-hmm. think one of them was made to protect her because she's still alive today and she was a survivor. I am going to call her Lisa Garcia, but if you listen to other podcasts or read other things, you will also see the name Beth Wilmot. These are both the same person. Okay. So it was a chilly Sunday evening and these two young women, Sherry Hull's father owned a cleaning business. Yeah. And these young girls, they were both 20 years old. They would clean office buildings. On January 18th, they were working at the Transamerica building. It was a title company and it was on the outskirts of Salem, Oregon, just off of Interstate 5. It was in a mall and they were the only ones there. It was around 9 p.m. and they were cleaning this office. They had gotten off to a bit of a late start. Usually they wanted to get done before it got dark, but this was a quick cleaning job. It wasn't very large and they thought it would only take them about 30 minutes to complete. See, even you just talking about two women at a cleaning or doing a cleaning thing at some random law, like it doesn't seem like it's the same even general area of where he's been doing other things. That just seems so random. It was so random. And that makes it even more frightful if you live there because it's like it could be anyone at any time. The office that they were at had windows on every single wall. And when you had the bright fluorescent lights on, you could easily see it was like being in a fishbowl. So he could have easily just driven by and he would see these two girls. They describe them as just looking like two little fish in the fishbowl. They just popped out to him. They had the front door unlocked because they thought they would only be there like 30 minutes. They were just chatting to each other. They were good friends. Sherry Hull had moved from Texas recently back to the Oregon area and had just taken this job to work for her dad while she saved up money to go back to school. Mm hmm. Everything was going well. It was a small office, like I said, so it didn't seem like it would take very long. They'd already cleaned the floors and dusted. And so Sherry said, I'm going to take the trash out. And then Lisa said, I'm just going to finish cleaning the door. And then Mm -hmm. we're done and we're out of here. But someone must have seen Sherry when she took the garbage out on her own. That someone, unfortunately, was Randall Woodfield. Mm. He also saw that the door was left open from when she came out. He actually followed Sherry as she was walking back in from taking the trash can out. He ran up behind her. He had a silver revolver. His face was hidden by the hood of his jacket. He also had a fake beard. I mean, does he just drive around with it? He didn't even have a car. So he walked up like this one's really strange to me. Okay. So I don't know if he was just out trolling the mall. Just walking and walk, just looking for his opportune time. Right. He took the women into the small lunchroom, which was the only part of the office that could not be seen from outside. He demanded that they strip naked and get down onto the floor. He then forced them to perform oral sex. (sighs) He demanded that they swallow his ejaculate. When he was done with them, he told them to lie face down and he asked them if they had any rope. They said no. And then they started Mm -hmm. begging to not hurt them. Sherry was hysterical. She was pleading for her life. She swore she would never tell anyone what he had done. Just let them go. Lisa described that that seemed to make him like more crazy almost in a way. Like he enjoyed hearing Sherry beg for her life. Yeah. That's the hard thing with being in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. To know how to react because this person... They're not all going to be triggered by the same things or get off on the same thing. Yeah, you don't know. You just, you never know. And so you're always taking a bit of a gamble, I think. 
So Lisa describes her friend Sherry as just hysterical. And and so Lisa tried to approach it from the more rational side. Okay, so we're getting both. Yeah, so he's getting both. But she said there was just this cold look in his eye and she could just tell that he'd already decided what he wanted to do. So he told them to turn around, lay down and put their hands behind their backs. And then he shot basically execution style right next to Sherry's head. He put a bullet into her back of her head and then he moved to Lisa and he fired a shot into her head. She felt it go in and then she laid still and basically pretended to be dead. Mm. Her friend Sherry started moaning. So it was clear that she was not dead. And so he turned back to Sherry and shot her three more times. Oh, no. (laughs) He then walked out into the night and left the two young women there to bleed out on the floor, thinking he had left no witnesses. But thank God. Yeah, she just. Lisa survived. This is an amazing story because she was shot in the head. Right. And it's even more amazing. So she's able to crawl into the office and she dialed 911. She was lucid. She was able to describe everything right. that happened. She even gave the description over the phone. She stayed on the 911 call until the cops got there. While bleeding from the head. Right. And the cops, the 911 operator said it was amazing when she heard what the actual injuries were that this woman could even right. talk. Right. So she calls and she says, you know, we've been shot. My friend, I think she's dying. Mm. She's, you know, breathing right now, but she's probably not going to be breathing very long. And so they get ambulances there as quickly as possible. And she didn't realize, I think, how bad it was. And after she hung up the phone, she saw a mirror and she realized the right side of her face was a bloody mess and she could see her face swelling across her cheek and jaw over her eye and deep into her hairline but she was able to stay like I guess this is just the survival instinct she was able to stay awake until the ambulances got there so this is when a very important person in the story comes into play his name is detective Dave Kamenik and he was from the Marion County Sheriff's Office he was the main detective and he became kind of like just a father figure to Lisa. He was very sweet. He was very kind. Like You hear that often. He just yeah. seems like, I want to give this guy a hug. Like He did a lot for these victims. Yeah, um, that's good. And Lisa being the main one. So when they showed up, they found that the killer had been wearing gloves and he had not taken off a single item of clothing and he had kept his hair covered up by the hood of his jacket so they didn't really have any forensic evidence. What they did have was the thirty-two caliber bullets that were in the victim's head. And they did find a single curly black pubic hair. Just one. Just one. You're supposed to shave that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think Randall's in a frenzy, so he's not thinking it was straight. Sherry Hole was found barely breathing. She had three gunshot wounds to her head. She was rushed to the hospital, but she did not survive. Mm. Lisa was found fully conscious. She actually had two gunshot wounds. She only remembers being shot once, but she was actually shot twice. And they were fired execution style at point blank range to the back of her head. But she survived. Yeah, that's crazy. And I was just talking to you about the shoulder one. You never know. I know when you said that, I was like, wait, wait till you get to this story. (laughs) Hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) Like that doesn't even, that doesn't count. (laughs) When they took the x-rays, the emergency physicians were just absolutely shocked that she was able to survive it. The bullet had been fired into her head and had skirted right along her skull under her skin to rest a few inches in front of her right ear. Ah. The same bullets that had penetrated and killed Sherry 
had not even gone through best school. So they were talking about how some of us have stronger skulls than others. Mm-hmm. And did I say Beth? I meant Lisa, Lisa Beth. Lisa like she Beth. has different, yeah. the surviving victim, like she must've just had that stronger skull. Right. And the bullets didn't actually so go through to it hit like, her brain. It, it like, like bounced off. It like went past her. It was her. in the skin. Yeah. In between. Instead of going straight skull. through her skull, it just went sideways, like That's right crazy. up to her ear. What does she have? Titanium back there? Right. That is crazy. Or she was just meant to live and put this asshole. Something in. intervened. And That's said, what I believe. You, here you go. Because she's who's going to take him down. Right. Good. Because she saw him. Yeah. Not only did she survive two bullets to the head, but she was able to testify against Sherry's killer. She was able to describe him and what happened. So amazing girl. Yeah. Lisa Beth. Lisa or Beth. <laughs> yeah. I found Lisa in most of the newspapers. So I think that was her name. Okay. I believe that when Anne wrote her book, she named it Beth. She changed the name to Beth. She actually interviewed this girl oh, for her book. Okay. And maybe there were differing times when she said, please don't call me this, call me this. Or So both are there. Dave Kamenik or Detective Kamenik realized that this was probably connected to everything else going on in the I-5. And he was the one that put out like a notice to all jurisdictions to be on the lookout for this guy. Hmm. <sighs> He said somebody was robbing, raping, and ruining lives and had been doing it undetected for a month and a half at this point. Right. And we got to put this guy down because he's not stopping. Just one day later, the Vancouver, Washington skating rink is robbed. It's a female cashier working. She's 17 years old and she's there at the end of the day. And there are three boys, age 10 and 11, there celebrating their birthday. She's closing down and a man walks in with a silver revolver and takes all of the money out of the cash register and runs off. Seven days later, he shows up again in Eugene, Oregon at a dairy mart with a 23-year-old female clerk. Once again, he just takes the money and runs. So just doing the robbing thing right now. Yeah, you just hope he's going to take the money, but you never know. Does he ever go home? Yeah, he's going home every now and then. To like his girlfriend and whatever. Well, his girlfriend's in in New Mexico. I'm about to bring her up again because she's about to show up again. Okay. But he's still staying with Arden Bates in the room. And the six-year-old. But she's already said that he's gone all the time. She thinks he's just out hooking up with women. That's honestly what she thinks Mm -hmm. at this time. But he shows up probably to sleep during the day and he's doing most of this at night. Okay. And he's in the way that Oregon is set up and he's doing most of this in a stretch that goes from like Portland up to Vancouver, Washington. I think it's only like an hour drive. So he could do, he could go up and down and then still be home in Eugene for the day. Okay. Gotcha. On January 29th, he showed up at the Winchell's donut shop and there was a 20 year old female clerk working and a young customer that happened to just be in there. Uh, he did a sexually assault those girls. Customer and some customer and the 20 year old female clerk. Okay. He showed up one hour later 35 miles south in California. So now he's moving into California and he held up a supermarket there for money. Well, the reason he needed all this money is because he was on his way to meet the love of his life, Shelly. Oh, so this all has a purpose. Yeah, he needs money because he's meeting her in San Francisco. He just has to do all this shitty shit along the way. I just feel so bad for this little girl because she's like in love with this guy. She's 22. She thinks she's met her knight in shining armor. And while she's at home dreaming about him, he's out literally raping and killing girls women it's just uh. okay so he meets up with Shelly in San Francisco on January 30th so we have a few days of reprieve for all the workers along I-5 because he is busy being the cavalier man 
Okay. Shelly did say that he never had actual sex with her and she thought that was odd, but he made it sound like they were just going to wait for marriage, but he always asked her to go down on him. Go down on him. Yeah. Which seems to be his kink. Yeah, it does. He actually asked Shelly to marry him. So they got engaged in San Francisco and he called his parents and he said, I met the love of my life. I'm getting married. You keep forgetting like he has family. Yeah, his parents have no idea this no is going idea. on. They think he's great. He has two sisters. He goes and visits his sisters quite often while he's doing all of this. Like, yeah. he's living a normal life. That's the thing. And he's the nice, soft-spoken guy. Everybody, I, I haven't gone into this much, but he has a very soft voice. So he sounds very, like, just caring and patient. And the last guy you would ever think would commit murder and rape. So creepy. So his parents are excited. They think he's finally getting his life together. He's found the love of his life. He's going to get married. They're going to have grandbabies. All of this while he's doing these violent, horrible acts. So they stay together until February 2nd in San Francisco. Shelly thinks, you know, she's getting married. They've like set a date. She's going to move to Eugene, Oregon with him. They're going to get a house and all of this is going to happen in March. So she leaves on cloud nine. Wait, did she meet him in December? She met him on December 30th. And it's January. And it's now January 3rd. So a month later, they're engaged. Oh, my gosh. But it's young love. You know, I know. Blah, and you blah, blah. hear about that. And that's always the people who stay together until they die or something like and that. And she's a very naive girl that has romanticized yeah. this moment her whole life. Right. And so he, she's the perfect one to pull this over on. And maybe he thinks he is going to turn his life around. Maybe he does love her. He says many times that if he could just find a good woman that when it cheat on him and would love him that he would be able to stop Stop. Mm -hmm. we know that's not true but yeah he I think he truly believed that and so this was the girl that was going to do that but he's engaged to her now and he's still doing this stuff because he's going to keep going for another month anyways so she left on February 2nd and he said I'll call you and you know we'll keep planning our wedding she thought he was leaving from San Francisco to go visit his sister who lived in California just a little bit south of San Francisco called Shasta County and she kept calling him and he didn't answer calling him where at his sister's house so I'm not real sure how this works because it's not cell phone days right yeah like he called from a payphone. it says on February 4th that was the last time she heard from him so I don't know exactly how he's calling her I think like he was calling her from along places maybe he was telling her what hotels he was gonna well, stay maybe at if he's traveling then maybe he was meant to be at, yeah hotel yeah hotel wherever he was something. supposed to be he wasn't right. answering and so she was concerned she was like I think you know maybe he got in a car wreck maybe something happened right so she's freaking out and I'm going to tell you what he's actually doing because he's a fucking piece of shit. The days when you had to actually physically be somewhere for someone to get a hold of you. The other thing that he was doing when he was making these calls to Shelly or any of his other girls because he was still calling other girls not just Shelly. He was using the long distance number that would bill it back to Arden Bates. This is important. This is the girl right? Yeah. That he's living with. Yeah because that way he can pay yeah. um, his bill and this will come into play in helping catch him. So he was driving down to Shasta County and he actually did go visit his sister. But while he was there, he was up to other things. Okay. So on February 3rd, he showed up at the Burger Express and there was an 18 year old cashier and a 46 year old woman. And she was actually the wife of the owner. So he asked them for the money out of the cash register and then he told them to go into the bathroom. He taped the owner's hands and feet with an adhesive tape is like an athletic tape. So the same thing he was using on his nose, he okay. now has decided he's going to tie his victims up. So he keeps changing. Right. 
he taped her feet together and then he taped her hands behind her back together. And then he put a piece over her nose and mouth, which sounds dangerous. I don't know how she was breathing. So it's probably just in his pocket. And the only reason yeah, it's like it's, a small little roll. The only reason it's different is because now there's a 46 year old woman involved and maybe yes. he wasn't planning on it. I think that's it. And she was like a threat. So he tied her up. Yeah. And he basically pushed her into like the stall. And then he focused on the 18 year old because we know that's his type. Ugh. So he sexually assaulted her in the same way he has the others via oral sex. But then he forcing the oral sex, forcing the oral sex for them on to him. And, and right. he liked to force them to swallow it. Oh, yeah. He also has herpes, by the way. Oh, that's true. So that makes him uh, an even bigger piece of shit because many of these girls ended up with herpes. No. Okay. He also decided to commit sodomy or attempt to. Fortunately, uh, as he was doing this, thank God for this poor girl, the owner's husband shows up. Oh. He comes in. Wow. And he hears crying. The young like, girl. Yeah. Oh, he's oh. like, you know, where's my wife? Comes yeah. in and he starts banging on the bathroom door Randall opens the door and flees <sighs> and of course you know the owner is more worried about his wife who's like tied up and and this 18 year old girl so he's not mm. going to go after the guy right exactly especially coming into a scene like that right she was probably undressed in some ways yes yeah so sadly just two hours after this event two hours Randall Woodfield would show up and commit another murder so let me talk about the victims before we go into what happened. Okay. The Eckerd family lived in Mountain Gate, California. They lived at the end of a road that was right off of I-5. Okay. The family was Steve and Donna Lee. Steve was a firefighter for the local fire brigade, whatever. Yeah, I don't know what you <laughs> call it. The word totally went out of my mind. <laughs> And Donna Lee was a registered nurse who worked at the local hospital. Donna Lee had two daughters, Janelle and Kristen. So Janelle was 14, Kristen was 12, and their stepfather was Stephen. They were a great family. They loved him. The sad part is when you are a first responder, often you have to leave your family at home alone at night while you go off. So this is a really tragic story because he's going to be one that gets called oh, back. to his own house. Like, oh can you imagine the horror? Yeah. Like... That's your worst nightmare. Oh, no. So that day on February 3rd, Donna Lee had had a outpatient like surgical procedure done. So she's at home and she's in pain. She's just resting. Steve left for work and he calls and talks to his wife at 3.30 p.m. She said, I'm not feeling great. I'm just going to go lay down. So it's just her and Janelle at home. Kristen, the 12-year-old, had gone to a basketball game and she calls her mom at 6 p.m to ask if she could go over to a friend's house after the basketball game. And her mom, she said, sounded normal but sleepy. And, and her mom said, sure, you can go hang out with your friends. Just be home by 9 p.m. 12? 12, yeah. This is back in the day, though. Yeah, this is in the 1980. That. So when the seventh grade Kristen would arrive home at 8.52 p.m. and call out for her sister and mom, they would not respond. This poor 12-year-old saw something that no person especially not this young should ever have to see she found her mom and sister in her parents bedroom they were side by side on the bed donna lee was in a nightgown that had been pulled down exposing her breasts her ankles were bound with white tape and her arms were also bound behind her with tape her mouth and nose were covered with the same tape her 14 year old sister janelle was completely naked and her face was covered with blood <laughs> 
being a firefighter's daughter, she immediately called 911. Called 911, but she also tried to make Resuscitate sure. Yeah, she she says she knew that her sister was dead because Aww. she could just tell, but she thought her mom might still be alive. Right. Steve Eckerd had to respond to his own house and he had to see this scene too. Yeah. So like fucking, I don't know. He came into the house and he was able to confirm it was his wife and stepdaughter. And then he, you know, turned it over to others. There was a bullet in Janelle's neck. And then they also found multiple wounds to the back of her head, execution style. She was shot seven times. The little girl was shot seven times. Yeah. Donna had been shot twice. Execution style. But then he just what? Then he put them on the bed. You said to the back of the head. You said they were laying on the bed side by side. Mm -hmm. But she was laying on her back. She was laying on her stomach, I think. Oh, go back and look. I don't know. Thought it doesn't say how she was laying. It just said that she was tied up and her nightgown was pulled down. It makes more sense that they're laying whatever way and they're found that way. But I was like, why shoot them that many times and then go lay them next to each other on the bed? If that's yeah, I think like they were on the bed thing. when he shot them. I mean, the other way that he shot like Sherry and Lisa, he made them turn around face down and shot them in the back true. of the head. I think that's how he okay. shot Janelle and yeah. Donna as well. Detectives responding to the scene noted the similarity in the execution style of killing to those of the two Ah, girls in Oregon. Same. Okay. Kristen remembered on the conversation that she had with her mom. Oh, okay. So let me back up. So the detectives are like, why this house? Right. It's at the end of the street. It's not really like right off of I-5. Like you have to go into the neighborhood to get to it, but it's like a neighborhood right off of I-5. But they're like, why this? It's at the end of the street. There's many other houses. Why would this person choose this house? Right. So- they're, they're questioning Kristen, and she remembers while talking that her mom and Janelle were going to run up to the store to pick up a few things for breakfast the next morning. So they saw they, he saw them. So there was a convenience store at the end of their street that was right off of I-5 called Jake's. And this is where a lot of people would pull over and just, you know, get snacks or whatever. Um, there was a resort town nearby, so a lot of people would go in there to get supplies before they went camping. <sighs> so... After she says this, they look in the back of Janelle's jeans pocket and they find a check that had been made out to Jake's convenience store. But for some reason, she never actually made it to the store to cash it. So back in the days, you know, your mom would write you a check. Yeah. To And it was for like, you know, I think it was for 10 or $15. So just enough to buy the supplies. So she'd go in, get the cash and then buy the supplies. Her mom had just had an operation. So her mom was obviously not going to go in. So what they think happened mm. is that Donna put a coat over her nightgown okay, and drove Janelle down to the store. And then Janelle was going to go in mm-hmm. and get the stuff while her mom waited out in the car. When they went and interviewed the cashier at Jake's, they said they had never come inside. So they were obviously intercepted when they pulled into the parking lot. Perhaps he jumped in the car with them, put the oh. gun up to them. That's what I think probably okay. happened. And then he made them take mm-hmm. him back to their house. Because his car is not with him. It's somewhere else far away. He's trying not to be connected to his car. Right. Because I just picture them pulling up and going away and he like starts to follow them or whatever. Yeah, he didn't follow them. He was in the car with them. His other way is just so much more crazier already jumping in the car with them. While I'm talking about this, I need to go back because there was one detail I left out on the Sherry Hole and Lisa Garcia shooting. Which is... Which is the, the one in Salem, girls, Oregon, the cleaning. The cleaning, yeah. As the cops were responding, 
not Kamenic, but another cop that was responding, they had put out, because of the 911 call, Lisa had described what the man looked like. She said he was tall, good looking, athletic, blah, blah, blah. And as one of the cops was driving, he was about a mile and a half away from the transatlantic building. And he saw a guy on the side of the road, which would end up being Randall Woodfield. Mm-hmm. But he dismissed it because he's like, this guy's a mile and a half away. Can't right. be the guy. But it fit the description. And this will come up in the trial because they talk about for him to have gotten there, he had to be a really good athlete. Well, Randall was a good athlete. Right. He was a great he runner. Completely ran away. So that is why they theorize that he never parked anywhere because he was able to run so quickly back to wherever he hit his car. Uh, Okay. Okay. In this one, who knows where his car was, but somehow he intercepted them and ended up back at their house. Okay. They did retrieve the bullets from the bodies and they found them to come from the 32 caliber gun, just like the ones we saw in the Sherry Hole and Lisa Garcia case and also the one girl who had been shot in the shoulder. They were able to determine that not only did it come from the same caliber, 32, but it had to have come from the same gun because they can look at how the markings are right. on the bullets. Yep. So they know they're looking for the same guy. There were no signs of sexual assault on Donna Lee. Too old. Right. Jan- yeah. Okay. They believe Janelle had been sodomized and they believe it happened after death. After death? So this is really oh odd. Oh my gosh. Okay. So he's changing his behavior again. Right. The guy is just a wild animal that needs to be put down right now. Nothing was stolen from the house except for a 38 special handgun Smith and Wesson. So just more. So this was a unique gun and this is something that Steve Eckerd noticed was missing and he was able to provide the serial number to the detective. So now they know that he's out there with another gun and they're able to track it. Well, because yeah, that's good. They know exactly what's missing. Yes. And he's a fireman. He's going to know. He's going to look. Yeah. They determined that the bodies, based on rigor mortis and other manner, that they had only died one hour before they were found by Kristen. So she returned home at 8.52, so they were murdered around 7.42. Kristen's very fortunate that she came home as late as she did, because if she had come home any earlier, she may have been Run into succumbed him. to the same. Yeah. Right. <sighs> he obviously didn't know either that her husband... Was who he was because he's just no because like, he's just picking him up out, anyone out of, out of a parking lot. He and, probably honestly he probably saw Janelle get out of the car and she mm, was his type, right? That's what I think. And yep. then he grabbed her and said, "Get back in the car and don't be anybody's type." We are all someone's type. That's the scary I know, part. That's that is the scary part. We are all someone's type. And there's too many scary men out there. So just one day after the double homicide, he was back at it. <sighs> so February fourth. There was an unnamed victim in Wairika, California. She was 21 years old, and she had just stopped at a convenience store to buy some cigarettes. She got back into her car, and a man forced his way in with a gun and told her, don't look at my face, and pushed her into the passenger seat. He started driving off with her. He forced her to give him oral sex while he was driving. When she started crying, it made him angry. He he kept asking her if he was as big as her boyfriend, like and his member. His, yeah, his so she survived. Penis. She's yeah, this is just this. a rape. Okay, um, just a rape. Just a rape. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, Kendra. You're talking about some crazy stuff. We don't. <laughs> There's just so kind much. Of forget here. how to it's talk just, sometimes. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. We have to know about this to be able to talk. Protect ourselves and well. 
We do. And it's not until like some of this became more mainstream to talk about that some of us have like know what we'll do in situations. And we know how dark things yeah, can get. How dark and people can be. Yeah. And it's not to, it's kind of against like what we do in some of our other, other episodes. Right. Like, We're trying to like do a mix love, of everything. Like but the thing is, is you still have to be aware that regardless of all of that, there are very There's dark people with yeah. some very dark fantasies and things that they want to do. And you never know. And they look like Randall Woodfield. So you can love everyone, but you also need to be on alert, especially I was, women. I was having this discussion when I was researching this. I was telling my boyfriend Drew about it. And I was just like, I can't believe people like this exist. And I told him the whole reason I think women mostly are into true crime podcasts, documentaries or whatever is because we are always the victims. Exactly. And we need to prepare ourselves. And like for me, it's like anytime I'm scared of something because I am scared of serial killers. I want to educate myself as much as I can because it, it makes me feel more protected. Well, and I think and that's it, what this is about. It does numb you in a way so that you can, without emotion, think through certain scenarios. Right. Like what would I do? Out what would I do? And kind of come up with that stuff for yourself. But it's a if it's a complete shock to your system, like, oh my gosh, I never knew stuff like this happens, then yeah. you may not react in a way that will save your life. Right. So, I don't know. So, back to this only rape, which was still horrible. <sighs> this poor 21-year-old girl. Yeah. He basically wanted her to act like she enjoyed it. He wanted... She said she just like felt like he needed some kind of validation from her he obviously hadn't had a, a mean, genuine a genuine connection but he has shelly then he literally just saw shelly two yeah, days but he's ago not he's not screwing her yet i know like it just doesn't make sense to me so he has just been with this girl he got engaged to two days ago and now he's killed two more people he's raped the girl at the burger express and now he's picked up another girl to rape like he's just it, out of his it must, mind it must be too he's because part of him wants to be this Christian, Christian yes. person who has a wife and they're going to live happily ever after. And he knows that part of that is not, you know, fornicating with her until they're married. Right. So he's like this. But you know, so now, so it's all old fashioned guy with her. He's like literally two different people. He's Jekyll and Hyde. Yes. And I really think that like, I wonder, I know they never said he came out as schizophrenic, but it just seems like two different people for sure. I don't know how else. And this other person has compulsions that he can't control. I mean, these are intense. Yeah. 20 minutes later, two hours later. Right. Like, yeah. So he has her in the car. He keeps telling her not to look at him, but she is, you know, side eyeing and, and looking at him because she thinks she's going to die. Or yeah. and she's like, if I, if I don't die, if I get away, I want to know who this person is and put his ass in jail. He took her into the middle of nowhere. So he drove her into like the woods essentially outside of Wairika and this is up in Northern California. So it's very like the redwood trees, you know, big yeah. places, plenty mm -hmm. of, plenty of middle of nowhere type places. Right. He pulled over and told her to take all of her clothes off and then he raped her. So once again, he's changing up his style. It's just whatever he feels like in the moment with that person. While he was raping her, he kept telling her how much she liked it. And she felt like she needed to respond. And he kept, again, asking. He was like, I bet you've never seen a penis like this before. You know, Jeez. just needing full ego, whatever, boost. 
So she did that because she wanted to live. And then he taped her wrists together with surgical tape again. And he left her in the rear seat, naked, tied together. And then he started driving back towards Wairika. At this time, she started just trying to talk to him normally and ask him questions. She told him about her boyfriend. She said they just had like these normal conversations. She just wanted to keep him talking so he would see her as a human being and not kill her, which worked out for her. He pulled into a parking lot of a restaurant right off of I-5 in Wairika. And then he became like Mr. Normal Guy. And he was like, I will drop you off where, you know, no one can see you since you don't have clothing on. He pulled in between like he's acting like this great guy. And then he was like, he made a comment to her that the reason that he raped women is because women had all the control when it came to sex and that they got to have sex whenever they wanted to. And they basically withheld from men. And he gave her like this lecture about she should put out more for her boyfriend. (laughs) So we saw a little glimpse into him just like feeling like, I guess, raping, like he felt like he could only get sex from women when they wanted to, which is how it should be. It's called fucking consent, dude. And so I think his raping was just about, you know, bringing it back. I mean, but it's so confusing. He has a woman who would probably do that with him. She wants to have sex with him and he's telling her no. But he's not real fucked up. Sorry. No, he's just all kinds of messed up. He told her not to call the police. Of course, she's going to because she's a smart woman. And then he ran off into the night. And of course, she got out of the car, got her clothes on and drove to the nearest police station. So let's go back to Detective Komenik, who I mentioned. He's up in Oregon and he's realized it's been really quiet in Oregon for the Mm -hmm. last few days. But then he gets a uh, notice from California where the double murder happened. And he realizes it's 32 caliber. They start talking and they realize now once again that they have a killer going up and down I-5 and it's now stretched into California. So they have put together a task force. They're all going to meet in Oregon and start trying to find this asshole that's doing oh, all of this. So they're kind of working together. You yeah, don't really so, hear that all the time. No, though. but they had to because he kept going all over the place. Right. They started putting together like I think about the maps and everything that you see in all the movies. They started putting together what they knew of the person and they started realizing all the composite drawings and composite. all of the descriptions are all the same person. Yeah. The 32 caliber gun. And then they have the Volkswagen bug. So those are the things that they know is happening and they're just trying to solve this guy. There's Mm -hmm. actually a movie made about this. Um, It's called The I-5 Killer. It's on Lifetime. It didn't get great reviews, but like as I'm reading the story, I'm like, this would make a really good movie. Yeah. The problem is, is you like actually need someone to do a good job with it. But a lot of them end up being Lifetime movie things. Right. (laughs) So he shows back up in Oregon on February 9th. So he's done with his California trip and getting engaged. He shows back up at a fabric store in Corvallis. He robs the clerk and another customer, forces them into the back room, tapes them with the surgical tape to their wrists and their uh, ankles, and then he sexually assaulted both of them. That same night, (laughs) February 9th, he shows up at a laundromat where two girls are working, and he does the same thing to them. So he's just out of control that's out of control maybe it's because he knows he can't sorry but get hard again right away right so but he needs to keep doing it so he takes a break and goes on to someone else it's like as soon as he gets an erection he just looks for someone because he can't stay in one place too long yeah it's i don't know (sighs) 
He shows up three days later in Vancouver, Washington again at 6 p.m. He shows up at the sassy dress shop. It is an elderly clerk working. He binds her with the tape. He does not sexually assault her. And then he leaves with the money. One hour later, he shows up in Olympia, Washington, which is 100 miles north. Like this is... Jeez. He's flying. An hour later? It he says one hour later. He didn't get caught going 100 miles an hour? Yeah. To the next town? He's like crazy. I guess because he showed up at the dress shop and it was... Wow. Was weird noise. <laughs> Your demon was coming out. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> it crawled up from your stomach. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. I know. You it didn't wasn't feel a burp. It. You didn't feel it or anything. Uh, <laughs> one hour later, he showed up 100 miles north. Um, probably because the sassy dress shop girl was not his type. So he's still well, looking for the sexual. Well, maybe that's why he went there. He's like, well, maybe there's it's a, a dress girl there. Shop. It's a dress there's got to be a girl, but yeah. he just robbed it. So he shows up um, at a drive-in restaurant and there's two teenage girls working there. So that's his type. And he ties them up. He takes them into the freezer. What an asshole here. He puts them in the freezer. He sexually assaults them. And then he leaves them locked in the freezer. Oh, no. I don't know how they were found, actually. Fortunately, they were found before they froze it up. You can't be the only two people working at a fast food restaurant. Or I, there's, well, I'm going to get to it here in a minute, but also customers show up and they're like, where, and they find people that way. Um, So this is all the same day. So at 6 p.m., he robs the sassy dress shop. One hour later, he's in Olympia, Washington at the drive-in restaurant. And then he shows up at 10 p.m. at the Dairy Queen in Bellevue. There's a male teenager and a female teenager working he locks the male employee in the freezer and then sexually assaults the female and also robs them. Once again, it's going out that these are happening and they're hearing, you know, all of the departments are hearing that it's the same description. It's a tall, good looking man with big beard and mm, athletic tape. He's thing. still using the same MO. Well, that's the thing is, as you're talking, you're thinking this is over a long period of time, but it's all in a couple of in months. A few weeks. Like, so I just it's can't. like he just didn't let go of the tape yet. Right. <laughs> he's like, I just learned this. Yeah, he's doing different things. Like, he's evolving and doing... Yeah, he started with no tape. He started just robbing. Then he started with oral sex. And now he's moved on to sodomy. He's tying people up. He's murdering. He's sexually assaulting multiple women in one day. Like, Mm -hmm. the guy's just unhinged. What is he doing with all this money? He's sending gifts to his girlfriend and all of his admirers. Oh, and he's paying. Yeah. And he's paying to stay... In because he doesn't have a job, he has no job. Oh my gosh, this is his job. So, we're getting to Valentine's Day now. He has decided he's going to go to Beaverton, Oregon. He, I won't go into all of this, but he had met a girl because during all this, he's still like out meeting girls and living a normal, like, bachelor life. So, there's a story about this girl was driving on I 5. This guy came up next to her, she noticed him like trying to get her attention, she kind of blew him off. She kept looking over. He kept following her. And then she noticed he was kind of cute. He seemed flirtatious or whatever. So she pulls over. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this scares her to death now. But she pulls over. He gets out. He says, I think you're cute. Can I have your number? She gives him her number. And she lives in Beaverton, Oregon. So he becomes obsessed with this girl and decides he's going to go to Beaverton for Valentine's Day and because go out with her. Because she was the one that seemed to have, like, started the interaction in a way with, like, the clerk's cutesy flirting looks. I don't know. 
But he gets her number and he starts calling her. He calls her at like 2.30 in the morning and she lives with her parents. And her dad's like, oh, you don't want anything to do with this guy if he's calling you at 2.30 in the morning. So she never actually met up with him again. But that's the whole thing that took him to Beaverton, Oregon. And he decided to rent a room at the Marriott. And he was going to have a Valentine's Day party. He called all the girls he knew in the area out of his black book. He sent Valentine's Day cards. He sent flowers. He, of course, also sent to his fiance, who still yeah. thinks, you know, they're in love. He plans to have a party at the Marriott and no one shows up. So he's in Beaverton, Oregon. And I want to take you back to a girl I mentioned quite a while ago. Her name was Julie Wrights. And she was his 17-year-old girlfriend that he had the fight with in front of everyone. So he was living with the 17-year-old girl named Lucy. And then he met Julie because she came into the bar and he gave her drinks. She was the oh, one okay, that okay. Yeah. he went to her townhouse yeah. and woke up with her and her friend in a bed. That girl. Okay. So she lives in Beaverton. She has just celebrated her 18th birthday on February 12th. So just two days after her 18th birthday, she just graduated or she's getting close to graduating from high school. She's living at her mother's townhouse, but her mom and then she had another roommate that also lived there. They happened to be gone for the weekend. So she was home alone. Her mom returned from the weekend, opened the door and she found her daughter, Julie Wrights, naked and laying on the stairs. She first thought her daughter had passed out drunk from one of the parties. She knew her daughter was going to Valentine's Day parties that weekend. She called out to her, and then upon closer examination, she realized her daughter's long brown hair was stained with blood. She had been shot execution-style near contact with a gun to the head. Detective Dave Bishop and Neil Loper were the ones that were called to take charge of the case. They came in, and they saw that there were no signs of struggle. They theorized that it looked like she had been running down the stairs to get to the front door and get out of the townhouse and was shot from above by the attacker. Oh, that's okay. That's different. Right. Her mom and roommate said the door was always locked and they did not believe Julie would ever let someone in that she did not know and trust. Julie had just finished from high school and was getting prepared for her graduation and she'd been working as a clerk at a local children's clothing store once again she was beautiful long dark brown hair she was dating many men around her own age at that time she had been seen at several parties that night and the last time anyone remembered seeing her was around 2 a.m that morning no one recalled any arguments or incidents at a party that would have led to her ending up murdered in her home mm-hmm. several parties party right. hopper She was, you know, she's celebrating. (laughs) She just turned 18 and life is good, right? And so the autopsy revealed that there was a bullet deep in Julie's brain. It was a 38, the kind used in a 38 special Smith and Wesson gun. Ooh. So that was the one that went. The new one he picked up. Time of death was estimated to be between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Her body tested positive for male ejaculate and they were able to determine that whoever semen it was was a type B blood type. Her sheets on her bed were also stained with the same type of semen. Mm -hmm. So they have good evidence at this one. Yeah. They question, but okay. So here's the difference. This is not right off of I-5. Beaver 10 is not right off of I-5. So they're not thinking at this time that it's connected. Uh, They're thinking this was a personal murder. Right. Which it kind of is. Which, yeah, it's not, it's not the same thing that an I-5 killer would do. Right. The I-5. So there's no even thought of that right now. So they start questioning people that she knows. They question over 100 people. They take three dozen polygraphs and they have no leads. They have yeah. no idea who did this. A tip came, comes in from a cafeteria worker who overheard a high school student like at lunch or whatever talking about a gold VW bug 
that was seen driving up and down Julie Wright Street very late on Valentine's Day night. They have gone through all of the interviews with no leads. So they decide to start looking because they look for who's close to her friend wise. And now they start taking her friends and they ask questions about what other acquaintances does she know? You know, tell me about anyone who might have been of interest because they're really trying to figure out they're like, whoever did this to her had to have known her. And it might be someone that's farther out of her close circle. Mm hmm. So they started questioning the same people again. And one of Julie's close friends remembers a guy that used to work with Julie at the Fawcett Tavern years ago. She said he was much older than her and she remembers they went out a few times, but he came on way too strong. According to Julie, she found out, you know, he had another girlfriend and she decided she didn't want to date him, but they decided to be friends. This friend said that he drove a gold VW Bug. She gave the name. She said it was Randy Woodfield. And she said that Randy definitely knew Julie's number and where she lived and had probably been to her house a few times. A second person that they're interviewing brings up Randy. And she said he had asked to sleep in Julie's townhouse after taking them out drinking. So this is actually the friend that he called into bed. Yeah. Yeah. So they ended up talking to her and she's like, oh, I remember this one guy. He was kind of weird. He was into Julie and he showed up in our bed the yeah. next morning. So she's like, you know, okay. I, I doubt it's him, but I'll bring yep. it up. Yep. So that's the second time they heard Randy Wilkfield's name. Then there was a third person interviewed that mentioned Randy's name and said they had heard he was going to be in Beaverton around Valentine's Day. Because of his new interest. Yeah, because he's after the other girl. Right. They then asked Julie's roommate specifically about Randy Woodfield. And she said, yes, she knew him and he had visited their place before. She said Julie did not like him. And then they said, would she have let him in if he showed up at the house? And her roommate said, yeah, she probably would. She's like, she didn't like him, but she didn't hate him. She didn't have any reason to be afraid of him. Like right. if he showed and up. he listened when she said, hey, I don't like right. this. She, wasn't, away. she said, yeah, she probably would have let him in. So while this investigation is going on, they're hearing this guy named Randy Woodfield. Let's go back to the I-5 killer investigation. They still have no leads. They just know 32 caliber. They know the... the um, Smith and West. Oh, wait. No, we don't. They don't know that. That's part not, of this one. Yeah. Right. Four days later in Eugene, Oregon, at a 7-Eleven store at 325 in the morning, a customer shows up and there's no clerk in the store. Mm. He hears a muffled thumping sound and he goes into the back room and he finds a female clerk laying on her stomach naked. Her hands and feet have been tied with tape and a piece was over her mouth. The cops showed up. They determined she had been sexually assaulted, mm. but they found the adhesive tape. He had left the roll in the room. Ooh. So there's another fingerprints. Yep. Right. Well, okay. he's been wearing gloves, but I don't think a lot of people realize, but adhesive tape. Well, they mm. can look at how the adhesive tape is torn. Uh-huh. And they can look at the what Impression? it's made of. They can oh. look and they can like narrow it down to like where it was made, oh, yes. where it was bought. Okay. So gotcha. So it's a good piece I'm of like evidence. I'm like coming up with new things <laughs> and what what impression? Because <laughs> we know that they've all been tied up. So now they have right an actual evidence okay. piece of evidence. They also found some more left out in the street outside the store. So it's like some fell out of his pocket or something. Mm. Three days later, on February 21st at 9 p.m. at a Taco Time restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, two girls on duty were back in the kitchen area. They were actually back there talking about the I-5 killer and they were getting nervous because they know that he comes in when there's no customers and they had no customers. And then they said while they're talking about it, the door 
opens and a man walks in and directly comes to the back. And the one 17 year old girl's like, fuck this. I'm out of here. She bolts. Oh no. <laughs> she sees that he has a gun, yeah. but she's at this point, she's like, I'm just getting out of here. And she ran out the back door and she just kept going and she ran to the nearby Dairy Queen to call the cops. She left the other girl there by herself. But uh. by the time they got back and the cops showed up, the man had already left. So he went in, he saw her get out and he just oh. fled the scene. So. so he didn't do anything to either one of them. No. That's good. February 25th, four days later, at 6 p.m., a small restaurant in Corvallis. There's two girls working, 18 years old. Uh, one of them walked outside to use the restroom because the restroom was outside and he was watching. That's and just mean. I know. Especially in, in those states. In the cold states. Yeah. He followed her into the bathroom and he used a gun did the same thing he does to everyone and then he bound her feet and hands with tape and he left her alone in the dark bathroom she said it took her over 15 minutes to get her feet free and then she was able to get out he did leave semen behind at the scene and they were able to test it and it showed b negative blood so they're getting more and more evidence here mm-hmm. can't hide the stuff that's coming from inside our bodies this would be the last known case okay he's finally done what creeps me out is what you said at the beginning, how it's linked. He may be linked to so. These are just the ones that we many know more, of, right? and he's getting caught. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's other inter- interstate because you would think, if especially in the area, they would start to link a lot more well, to him. They think he was linked to some crimes in Wisconsin too Wisconsin. when he was there, right? That's right. and he could have been doing this for years. Yeah, and they just hadn't linked it together until he went through this like complete craze. Well, and most of it's connected to DNA. You said yes, a lot of it. Okay, I what I read was that they have linked eighteen murders for sure to him through DNA. Wow. I could only find really good details on these six. for one. Yeah, and we'll go into why, but over 60 sexual assaults too. Yeah. So now let's get into how he was caught. So on February 28th, because of the investigation into the Julie Wright's murder in Beaverton, they started looking into Randy Woodfield, that officer Bishop or Detective Bishop was looking into this. So he contacted the parole officer of Randy Woodfield who wasn't doing a very good job of keeping track of her patrolee. (laughs) Right. And she's like, oh, I realized he moved to Eugene and I was going to transfer his files eventually. Like she wasn't concerned. Look at all the shit he did. However, in talking to the parole officer, they said, well, we see that he was only arrested and convicted for robbery. And then the parole officers, oh, well, that's not the whole story. Let me tell you about the sexual convictions. So then they realized Mm. when they heard that it all matches up then yeah all the different things that mm-hmm. they've been experiencing so they knew there was a task force going on in Salem Oregon for the i5 killer and they felt like this was information that they should share and Dave Kominick the main detective out of Oregon that had been working on the Beth Sherry Hole yeah. and Lisa Garcia case realized when he heard this information because they had been doing searches of all the sex offenders and you know parolees and everything Randy Woodfield never came up because, because he wasn't listed not- as a sex offender Right. Idiots. And so as soon as he heard this, he was like, okay. This is our guy. guy, Not only is he named three times the car. Yes. She also brought up the parole officer let them know that he was a suspect in three other homicides. And that was in Sherry Ayers because he had been questioned for that, but let go because his blood type didn't match, you know, in 1980. Right. And then Darcy and her boyfriend, Doug. He had also moved to Eugene without permission. They saw a mugshot and that's when they knew. They saw a picture of him and then they found out that his blood type was B negative. There you go. That cleared him in the Sherry Ayers murder, but it actually proved 
otherwise for the Julie Wright's murder. Right. And for the I-5 killer. So the task force met together and went through all of this information. They realized that they were dealing with someone that had type B blood. So that narrowed their search down. And then they also found out that several of the women who had been sexually contracted or several of the women who had been sexually assaulted had contracted herpes from their assault. So they knew that the killer had to be positive for herpes yep so they set up a parole officer meeting so they made it seem very benign just a typical parole officer meeting and dave bishop was going to go along so dave bishop was the lead on the julie wright's murder case right now and they set up the meeting to meet with the parole officer and woodfield did not show up that's surprising because up until whatever point he'd actually been doing good yeah. Right, and he'd been meeting with until her. he went crazy. Like she hadn't heard from him in a couple months, oh, and this okay. is when he's committing all okay. these murders. So he did not show up. They drove over to his house. He was still living with Arden Bates, and they knocked on the door. Nobody answered, but they saw a gold VW Bug parked outside. He kept knocking, and then a sleepy Randy Woodfield finally answered the door, and he invited them in. He's like, "Yeah, come on in." <laughs> they questioned him, and they said, "Do you know Julie Wrights?" They showed him a picture, and he said. No, I don't know her. They said, okay, that's fine. In order for us to take you completely out of the suspect pool or whatever, can you take a polygraph test and would you be able to submit DNA samples of your hair and blood? He said no. Right. He started getting nervous and then he kind of blurts out. He was like, just because I had sex with her doesn't mean that I would have killed her. (laughs) Did they even say she was dead yet? Did they say that? (laughs) Oh, yeah, they said you should. Okay, know. sorry. He said he didn't know her just yeah, like 10 right. minutes earlier. And then all of a sudden he's like, just because I had sex with her. <laughs> they said, can we search your house? And he gave them permission to search his house. Mm-hmm. Now, something that goes with due process, usually if you get a warrant to search a house, you're looking for specific items. But when you just ask someone if you can search their house, you can, look you can at take whatever anything. you want. Right. So this gave them free reign to yeah. just pick up whatever they found. Right. So they did find the following. They found a, or they took into custody the following. They took a set of bed sheet and a mattress pad, probably to get DNA from. They found a wallet with a receipt for a purchase of a 22 caliber gun from Portland. Okay. They found a whole box of athletic adhesive tape that had six rolls, <laughs> one that was partially used. They found a gun cleaning kit for a 28 caliber gun. Okay. And those were the big things that they found. Was he ever a trophy guy? No. He wasn't. He's different. He got very nervous and was very concerned with why they were taking the adhesive tape. He was like, why would you want the adhesive tape? It's just my sport. Like he started acting really weird. Yeah. They were only looking for evidence in the rights case. But when Detective Bishop saw the adhesive tape, it triggered something in his brain because he knew what was going on with the I-5 killer. And he was like, this is interesting. I'm going to take it. Yeah. They then interviewed Arden Bates, which is the uh, woman who owned the house. And she mentions how often he calls long distance. And Mm -hmm. Detective Bishop is like, do you mind if I see your latest phone bill? And so he starts looking through the calls that have been made and he notices a charge from Mount Shasta, California on February 3rd, which matches up to the double homicide of the Eckerd. Right. Because he's calling most of the ones that he knows anyway. He's calling them. So at that time, they advised Miss Bates to take her son and get the hell out basically go stay at a hotel <laughs> and she realizes she's like I knew it she's like I just had a feeling he was the I-5 killer and like she's going I'm just off gonna and keep like, my six-year-old why didn't you say anything <laughs> probably because he was paying money I know so he they was paying yeah 
They set up constant surveillance of the house. They couldn't arrest him yet, but they wanted to keep tabs and make sure he wasn't going anywhere. So Dave Kamenik decided he was a damn near perfect match. It had to be him. He knew that he had B negative blood, the Volkswagen bug, and then the, the long phone bill that showed his movements all across the Pacific Northwest. And they all matched up to him being in the locations where all of the sexual assaults and the murders had happened. Now, this is where I get upset again. There was a dispute uh-huh. for days. They knew that they probably had the I-5 killer. But now you get the ego wars. Like, who okay. gets to say they captured the right. I-5 killer? Because we have three states, right? Yep. And we have, Darn. so we have Detective Bishop that is on the Julie Wright's murder. And then you have Kamenik, who is on the Sherry Hole. And and so they're going to head to head. They're fighting over this. And they're like, we can't arrest him yet. And he's just sitting there. He knows the cops are watching him. Yeah. And then finally, Dave Kamenik's like, enough of this bullshit. I'm going in. Like, we can't just, like, let him sit there. He's probably in there destroying evidence, which he was. Right. The other thing that they did is they took a picture of Randall Woodfield, and they showed it to Lisa Garcia, who was the surviving girl who was shot at the cleaning place. And Mm -hmm. she looked at the picture and said, it's quite possibly him, but she didn't know for sure because a picture. And they said, fine, we're going to do a lineup in a few weeks, and we'll fly you down. So the other thing that was happening is... The media got wind that the I-5 killer had been found. So now we have media trucks showing up outside of Randy's house and it was getting out of hand. So Kamenik said enough is enough. So on March 5th, he went around. There was a DA. I won't get into all the politics, but there was one DA that was holding it up. And finally, Kamenik was like, fuck the process. We're going to get this fuck guy. Fuck the process. <laughs> <laughs> so he rang the doorbell and he met Randall Woodfield face to face. Randy let them in. They said he was weirdly casual, just like a guy having friends over. He gave them a tour of the house. He answered their questions. But anytime they would bring up the I-5 incidents, um, he could tell that Randy Randy was tensing up and he was becoming uncomfortable. (laughs) Why else are they going to be there? Right. He's all, just come on in. Come on in. You'll have a beer and forget about it. You'll forget that I may be this dude. So at this moment, the only thing that they could arrest Randy for was violation of parole. So they took him into custody under violation of parole, which is a pretty weak thing to hold somebody. But they were hoping if they could get him into custody, they could find other things by searching his house. They also got him into a lineup and they called in all of the witnesses that they could from up and down the I-5 killers crime spree. And they did the lineup. Randall Woodfield was labeled number five over and over again as the six men stepped into the viewing room. The victims chose number five. Mostly not because of his look. So they took all of these other cops and they put fake beards on them. They made them look the way that they would think. It was his voice. voice. He was very soft spoken. The women who were not convinced looks wise, as soon as he talked, they knew it was him. Yeah. On March 16th, 1981, there was multiple indictments from Oregon and Washington jurisdictions for murder, rape, armed robbery, attempted kidnapping, illegal possession of a firearm and sodomy. The only thing that he ever stood trial for was the one case of Sherry Hole murder and the attempted murder and rape of Lisa Garcia. Lisa was able to testify against Randy in court and point him out. And she was probably the most convincing witness because she had survived and was able to say that's him. Right. Exactly. He was sentenced in fall of 1981 to life in prison because there was no death penalty in Oregon. The judge actually said when sentencing him that if there was death penalty in Oregon, Randy would have gotten it. Oh, yeah, for sure. He said he actually was sad that there wasn't a death penalty to give him. I think that's going to be an interesting topic for you and I. Yeah. I think it always is going to be like uh, the topic of 
the death sentence. I know it's hard. Like in this case where it's clear that and he there's did children. This, I'm sorry. Like, I want. I, yeah. Anyways, there was a long line of other jurisdictions with cases they wanted to try Randy for, like especially the Eckerd murders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Julie Wright's his mom wanted him to go, but they realized at this point it would be overkill and it was going to cost millions of dollars to try him for all of the things because he had done so fucking much. As long as he's in jail forever, right. everybody kind of called a truce on it. Right. Okay. And they said if he ever came up for parole, the California Shasta County legal system said if he ever came up for parole, they would convict him and make sure he got the death penalty. But isn't there like... Because in California, he could get the death penalty. Right. So they said, fine, if he ever comes up for parole and there's any chance this guy's going to get out, we will make sure he is taken to California and given the death penalty. So there's okay. no chance this guy's ever getting out. Right. He's got too many people waiting, and which is good for all of us. Wow. So as of today, Randy Woodfield is 72 years old and he remains in the Oregon State Penitentiary, but that hasn't stopped him from terrorizing women. Over the last 42 years, he continues to write letters to women, seducing them and trying to use them and plead to them that he's innocent and get them to send him money. So he's raping them financially now and he's getting this. His parents no longer talk to him. His dad said, this is not the son I know. And his family has not spoken to him well, since he was put into prison. If he's 72 now, his parents should be Well, I'm dead. saying, yeah, when he was okay. put into jail in 1981, yeah. like okay. his parents never talked to him again. His okay. sisters didn't visit him. He was completely cut off. So Randy has been married three times while in jail. I never understand this. But it These happens women a lot. Become, it's not even just women. It's women and women. Yeah. Like, um... Just getting married. It get, sometimes gives them in different jails conjugal more rights. privileges. Yeah. Sometimes not even conjugal, but just some kind of different privilege than what others would get. He's still, you know, like I said, he's still preying on women and women are still falling for his, I guess, charming ways that he has. Randy has never admitted guilt and claims that he is innocent of all the charges against him. Criminal psychologists and detectives that have interviewed him over the years says he seems cold distant and completely unremorseful it's almost as if he had another side to his personality and does not accept that he was capable of committing those murders so there's theories like i said before schizophrenia he even said like that was like his dream state like he's tried to like say it wasn't him and he maybe just doesn't want to face that he's a monster yeah that's oh my gosh so To this day, even at 72 years old, they say Randy considers himself a step above other inmates. He's a typical narcissist. He spends so much time on his appearance while in jail. He tries to impress the female guards. He's just in there preening and acting like he's still the ladies' man. He's trying to impress the female guards now? Yeah. Some things never change. But he's locked away. He just wants a chance to get his hands on one of them, truly. And he still does the exposure, like I mentioned before. He still does that? Yeah. I don't know if he still does that at 72. Last I saw, like, he hasn't done a lot of interviews over the years. And I think a lot of people have forgotten about him, which he should be forgotten about because he's a piece of shit. But he is now, from what I understand, in the last decade or so, he's just very reserved and just sits in his cell and doesn't have a lot of friends. So he's well known as a sexual pervert now. So I can't imagine that inmates want to hang out with him. That is the story of the I-5 killer. May he continue to rot in jail. Wow. The crazy part, I still, it's just the crazy part about that is that it was over a couple of months that we know of what he did. But I'd like to know when the earliest crime that he committed that ties back to his DNA was found. 1974. So this was in Wisconsin. There was a girl 
and I cannot remember her name. I did not write this down, but they have connected him to a college student in Wisconsin that went missing. Like it looked like she was like walking home at night or something. She, they believe she got picked up by Randall. So that's the earliest one. That's almost a decade later, right? That was you before he went to prison the first time. So that's when he was there playing for the Packers or playing for so, the farm team. So, but when was he sentenced to jail? Jail now that he that he's still there. Uh, 1981. 1981. So that's. Seven years. Yeah. He could have been That's stopped. seven years of stuff. Yeah. I think he was yeah. active he much just, earlier he than they realized. He just went into this crazy two month. The other thing, there was brain. another serial killer active on the I-5 freeway that was a strangler. And so some of the victims they find, they don't know if it was Randall Woodfield or if the, it was this guy. And then also Ted Bundy, there was a hitchhiker that came up that and they don't it, know which they're one. They're active the same time. They're both the 70s, good looking. They were both able to right. get women. The 70s was just a scary time, especially on the West Coast for whatever reason. I don't know what was going on there, but there was a lot of serial killers. So, And now they're all slowly being, I mean, if they weren't put away yet, we're finding them. Yeah. And they're still victims. We'll never know. You know, killer. Crazy one. Don't like the children ones. No. (laughs) I found this one because I was looking for, uh, when we were talking about doing dreams, I was looking for serial killers that, or any killer that acted in a dream. And he came up because of his quote saying that he thought he did it in a dream. Because he's he's still not taking responsibility. responsibility. He can't admit it. So that's why he came up. And I didn't realize how fucked up he was until I started researching. And then I was like, oh, this makes me, like, I'm glad to be done with him so I can move on to something that's not as dark and depressing. Yeah, I was watching you talk about some of these things and you were physically bothered. I really can't handle young girls being... No. Yeah, exposed to horrible things. Anyway, on that note, I think. <laughs> thank you for listening. Yeah, even thank you to for the dark, listening. the dark stuff. Um, we will bring you know light and love like we have before. I and don't we'll know. continue to bring some of the dark stuff too. Thank you for listening. Please send us in any stories or topics that you would like us to talk about. We will be having our first volume of lab reports where we share your stories. Um, we're planning to release that in June. If you want to send us any stories, please email us at lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. or you can mail us at P.O. Box 251 East Lake, Colorado 80614. And please follow us everywhere we are. Please, please, please. And everywhere we are is just Lucid Lab Podcast. And that's on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Facebook. Yes. And then we have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Any of your help really does make a difference for us. We love you. We love you. If you can donate, then we will be able to keep doing this and then at the same time be able to create the extra stuff that we yes. want to do for everybody. So, yes. Please. <laughs> yes. And we have, like we mentioned a couple episodes ago, we have everything mapped out for the rest of the year. So we've got big plans and great stories to bring you. So please stick with us. Please like us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please rate us five stars. Kindly and share. And share any feedback. I think it's really cool when we're all sharing different podcasts too. Anyway, we got to go now because I actually have things to do tonight. I have to go do some stuff. Well, we're thinking about you guys. We can't wait to hear from you. And in the meantime, stay so very lucid. Stay lucid, guys. Take care. Bye.